The reading today comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 10, and I'll be reading the entire chapter. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah, on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have uh, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, "What shall I do about my son?" Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats. Another, three loaves of bread, and another, a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps, being played before them, and they, will, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you, to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servants arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man who lived there answered, And who is their father? So it became a saying, Is Saul among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, he said. But when we, saw they were, when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul replied, He assured us that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah, and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. 
So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come before, uh, come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than all than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you not see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Adrian, and thank you, everyone, as you listened. These readings are a little longer, but they're stories, and hopefully you're listening to them as a story, being able to imagine the places, the scenes, and the people. Whilst you're in the imagining space, I wonder if you, like me, remember how quickly a day at school could turn from mundane to stressful. The picture in my mind is that one where it's lunchtime or maybe it's PE or something like that and there's going to be a game and you think game sounds good but then your normal day at school turns stressful pretty quickly as two people are appointed captains and it's time to pick teams. You know where I'm going, right? This is primary school for me. promise you, in primary school, one of the last guys picked. And you'd be standing there and you start becoming very judgmental of others. Don't you look at, you're going to pick pick them before me? And then that person gets picked and you feel smaller and smaller and you're terrified of, when are they going to pick me? Well, something happened for me. I don't know if it happened for you, but something changed between primary school and high school for me where I seemed to start moving up the ascendancy from a last pick to an early draft. And you feel a little better about that at first. Yeah, you're feeling good. Okay, one of the first picks. Yes, show me the contract. And uh, then comes another kind of stress. Because if you're like me, you're somewhat competitive, and you watch the captains, and you go, I don't know if I want to play for that guy's team. He's picking his friends. What are you picking your friends for? Pick the best players. And he's picking friends, and you're there going... You know, I don't want to get picked yet because I want to be on the winning team and I want to be on the losing team. And again, it, well, it became stressful. Maybe you've had that experience too. But there's another space where it's stressful. Maybe you've felt this. Maybe you've observed this. This is for the captains themselves. Have you seen it? The captains are there picking teams and they're like, ooh, that one or that one. And then like committee meetings start because they pick the first few guys 
And then that guy's in his ear going, no, not Dirks, get the other one. And he's trying to choose and then he's, of course, got that problem to start with where he's got to question his own internal values where he's like, do I pick my friends or do I pick the people who are going to win this thing? The people who are going to win this thing every time. Uh, So he's got to do that and there's this whole stressful thing that's unfolding and it's difficult. It's difficult. You don't want to be picked last. You don't want to pick wrong because you don't have to serve on the wrong team. And you don't want to choose wrong because you feel this responsibility of assembling a team that's going to win. You've picked the best player and then a rubbish team and now the best player's mad at you. It's tough. If you can imagine that sort of scenario or have lived that sort of scenario or a part of it, I think you might be starting to feel or discern some of the things that we may learn this morning in 1 Samuel 10. And that is that when it comes to leadership and indeed followership, there are a bunch of essential elements. But the one I want to share with you this morning, an essential element of leading and following is courage. The courage to step forward, the courage to answer call, the courage to be counted, be noticed and do the thing you're meant to do. Now, as we go through 1 Samuel 10, long reading, I know, I want to break it up into two parts for you. So let's go with chapters one, uh, verses 1 to 16. That's kind of going to be our backstage pass. 1 to 16 is the backstage pass of seeing some of the secret dealings that happen between God, Samuel, and Saul. So that's backstage. Then I'm going to bring you front of house into the spotlight, onto the stage, and we're going to see how it all plays out. So you got that? We're going to go backstage, then into the spotlight. 1 to 16, then 17 to 25. Let's go backstage. 1 to 16. Okay. Here we've got a guy called Saul. In the previous chapter, who is going about an average day just like you at school all those years ago. He's a guy who's looking for his donkeys. The donkeys are gone a wandering They don't have a sheepdog or a donkey dog or however you look after donkeys. And so he and his servant are looking for the donkeys. Can't find the donkeys. Great idea. There's a man of God, knows a bunch of stuff. Let's go see him. So while searching for their donkeys, a king is found. They go looking for donkeys, but encountering this guy called Samuel, he finds a leader. The leader to satisfy what the people had asked for, a leader of God's choosing. And so chapter 10 opens with Samuel speaking to Saul, speaking to him privately and saying, God has chosen you. In fact, part of this chosing is very particular. He pours oil on his head. You might say, he says, God has Christed you. Oh, you can't say that. That's blasphemy. Christ is not unique to Jesus Christ. Christ is the language of anointing. In fact, Jesus Christ wouldn't make any sense unless we first learnt about people like David and Saul. Saul is anointed as the leader of Israel, as the prince, the, the Hebrew experts tell me. Rather than king at this stage, he is the anointed leader or prince He is Christed prince, leader of God's people, Israel. That's a fair turn of events when you were just out looking for donkeys. Go to the info desk and they tell you, uh, actually, forget about the donkeys you're looking for. We're looking for a leader and he's going to be you. God says so. You might say, how can this be true? 
probably Saul thought, how can this be true? So Samuel gives him three signs. Verses 2, verse 3, and verse 5, Samuel lists some signs that are going to confirm. And it's not just the content of these signs. Possibly more important than the content is the location where the signs take place. Verse 2, at Rachel's tomb, you're going to meet two men. Who is Rachel? Well, Rachel was the beloved wife of Jacob, whose name became Israel, the father of Israel. Rachel, the beloved wife of Israel, bore Benjamin, the tribe almost eradicated at the end of Judges 21, the tribe at the centre of great controversy, the tribe that Saul comes from. So almost like God saying, look, despite everything that's going to happen, I'm going to rewind to the origins, and me, the God who made this whole thing, it's me who's anointing and calling and declaring that you are going to be the leader. At Rachel's tomb is a significant place to be. Then, verse 3, there's another sign. It's going to happen at a tree of Tabor with some people who are going to Bethel. What's the significance of Bethel? Well, Bethel is where Jacob, Israel, had once wrestled with God, called it Bethel, the house of God. And these guys are going to the house of God with their sacrifices with them. They've got goats and they've got bread and they've got all these stuff. So they're going to God's house with God's sacrifice. But God has said, a portion of what is mine is going to be given to you, Saul. Now, that's a big deal. These guys going to worship me in my house with my things, with my sacrifice. I give to you a part of that. I'm calling you in, Saul. We go on to verse 5, and here's where the signs uh, ratchet up a fair bit. Because we're going to Gebeah. And at Gebeah, this is where Saul is from, this is his home, we're told something. We're never told these things for nothing. There's a Philistine outpost there. Now here we are, what you might say, in frontier land. We've met the Philistines before. They are one of the tribes of the Canaanites, these people that God had commissioned and commanded Israel to drive out of the land of Canaan. So where Saul lives, there is an outpost of the Philistines. These are people that, if we're going to be faithful to God, must be dealt with. So it's going to happen. Well, when you go there, verse 6 tells us that the Spirit of God is going to come on you and you'll be changed, Saul, into a completely different person. You will not be the same as the guy I'm talking to now. In fact, you will prophesy. Now, verse 7 is critically important because following these scenes, following this change, once this happens, you're going to act. So God says, you'll see these signs some people at Rachel's tomb, some people going to Bethel. When we get to Gebeah, there's going to be this sign where you get changed and then you're going to do something. What does he say? Well, once this happens, do whatever your hand finds to do. This is different to Ruth closing the service a little bit later on saying, hope you enjoy the rest of the day. Maybe you're catching up with friends. Maybe you're going to have a picnic. Maybe you're going home for a nana nap. Maybe you're doing something different. Whatever you're doing, have a good time. Whatever your hand finds to do has a historic context back in books like Judges. It's the language of action amongst the Philistines. 
once you are changed and the Spirit comes upon you, you will lead God's mission and you will deal with the Philistines. That's what's going on here. This is language of action. Well, verse 9 tells us all the signs happen. Great! But by verse 11, a question emerges. Because by verse 11, we read, When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And that would become a saying. It's a saying for kind of, what's going on with this guy? Because for Saul, they observed the prophecy. They can see that he's changed, sort of. See, he's changed. The Spirit's come on him. He definitely prophesies. But what does his hand find to do? A lot. There's no once the change has happened, you will. There's not a lot. He just goes home. And verse 14 confirms any doubt that we might be having about this guy Saul. Because he comes home and his uncle, I don't know his name. I'm calling him Uncle Buck because of the movie. As an homage to Ian Barnett. There's the movie reference. Uncle Buck says, uh, Saul, where have you been? Now that's not a give us your itinerary, you're late, you've broken curfew a few days in a row. It's a, what's been going on? Uncle Buck, what's been happening, Saul? Put yourself in Saul's shoes. Put yourself in your shoes as a kid. Normal day at school. And today you're made the captain, pick the winning, pick the team. The team wins. It's fantastic. They carry you off and someone buys you a zooper duper at the canteen. You come home and Uncle Buck says to you, what happened at school today? And you go, oh yeah, we did some maths and like some stuff. Well, that's kind of what happens. Uncle Buck says to Saul, what's been going on? Oh, I've been looking for the donkeys and that. That's the best you've got. The man of God, Samuel, who is leading and judging Israel, just told you that God has anointed you the leader. We know the people have been asking for a king. They're pointing at you. You've had oil poured on your head. He has kissed you as a sign of his reverence for you. And you're like, I've been looking for the donkeys and that. Didn't find them, eh? Uncle Buck pushes him further and says, what did Samuel say to you? Saul says nothing about the big events of the day. He backs right out of making any comment about what God's been doing with him and what may lay ahead. I suspect there's a reason. He knows that his hand hasn't found to do what God has changed him for. He's not stepped into the calling. He's not acted on the changed person. His life right now is not commensurate with his calling. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, and that would be not many of you because it was COVID-restricted, our life group leaders were treated with a special lecture from Dr. George Athos. And as George taught us from uh, and introduced us to 1 Samuel, one of the things he said we're going to note in all the leaders in 1 Samuel, and truthfully in all the leaders you'll ever meet, are three conditions that affect each leader. They are death, they are sin, and they are incompetence. And you have seen these already. You saw death 
when you saw Eli's household, where Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, both died. They can't lead anymore because they're dead. And even Eli fell over, broke his neck. He can't lead anymore because he's dead. It hampers a leader's effectiveness when he dies. It's also touching Samuel's household now because the people last week said, Samuel, you are old. You seem to be dodging the other things, but we know that you're progressing towards death and that will hamper your leadership among us. Sin is something that we've seen touch leaders as well. In Eli's house, particularly his sons Hophni and Phinehas were scumbags. That's the technical term for the way that they were treating God's house, God's people and all things honourable. They were very, very sinful. And we've seen incompetence as well, again demonstrated in Eli, who failed to do anything about his sons when he saw their horrific sinfulness, said, you know, boys, you probably shouldn't be doing that. And failed to stop them from doing that in his position. He was incompetent as a leader. Now we see Saul. And from the very beginning, there is a sign of a critical problem with this man as a leadership. Incompetence. His hand found nothing to do. The very hand that was changed in this man that would now go and lead God's mission and contend with the Philistines, found nothing to do. And that's perhaps why he had nothing better to say to his uncle then. Looking for the donkeys, eh? That's all he could do. Now at this point, incompetence is a secret. It's a secret to Saul and to Samuel. It's backstage. This was a private conversation with them about what God had called Saul to do, about his Christing or anointing, about his leadership. But now we come to the second part of the passage because now we're going to take things that were backstage and bring them forward and put them squarely in the spotlight. And the thing I want to show you in the spotlight as the story continues is that it takes courage to lead and it takes courage to follow. 17 to 25 verses. Let's look at courage to lead. 17 to 19. Samuel sets the context. He's gathered everybody together, all of Israel, a significant spotlight. And there's a whole other thing we could talk about we won't have time for this morning, but uh, the way they are gathered is, is particular. But just note that they are all gathered there. This is a big deal. And Samuel says some really important words that remind us of what we've heard already in 1 Samuel. He says, God has led you. He tells him that God led you from the time you were slaves in Egypt and has brought you to this point thus far. This chapter, in my own personal devotion time, was the catalyst for me wanting our church to look into 1 Samuel over this period. Because I want you to know, I want me to know, that regardless of the leadership changes we see, just as in ancient times, God continues and has always led his people and he will not cease into eternity. I wanted you to know that. I wanted me to know that. I wanted the ministry team to know that. I want our hearts to be secured and strengthened in that truth. Samuel says God has led you from that point. But you is emphatic. But you, as Langdon taught us last week from 1 Samuel 8, have rejected his leadership when you asked for a king like the nations. Samuel makes it clear where we've come from and where we are headed. 
So now that he's given them this story that God is always there to lead, but they seem to reject God as their leader, the spotlight is bright because it's kind of that moment. It's like, it's like Kate and Will's kissing on Buckingham Palace balcony thing or for those retro Charles and Diana. I remember it, little boy, but I remember it. Well, the, the stage is set, the spotlight's there, and verse 22 happens. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes. He's hiding himself among the baggage. He's hiding in the baggage. He's not here in the spotlight where he's been. He's hiding in the baggage. Let's just do a little bit of a check on how we read things. Imagine a similar scenario here. We've got the guy. We've all come down. Everyone's in there fine. We're ready to meet. And where is he? Um, he's in the boot of his car in the car park. He's not coming in. Who's inspired? This is a tricky situation. See, at this point, we see another thing about Saul. We've had a hint of his incompetence. And now we're going to get an early signaling of his sin. Two of those traits, you remember them? Death, incompetence, and sin. He's given us a hint of incompetence, and now he gives us a hint of his sin. Why sin? Because God had called him. God had anointed him. God had spoken directly to him. He had a calling for this man and changed him for it. And now Saul rejects God's calling. In fact, Saul is very much like the people of Israel. See, the people of Israel are told by Samuel in this area, God had always led you and now you've rejected his leading. Saul, in the same way, God is leading you to a space that you will lead his people. And Saul, like the people, refuses to follow God. He's hiding in the boot of his donkey. Yeah, I know, I mixed some stuff around. Saul's failing to acknowledge God as his leader at this point. I don't know it's a big job, but he has a big God. And at this point, he flags his sin to us. Verse 24, the people cry out, once he's found and brought forward, long live the king. Now there's a debate amongst Hebrew scholars. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I can't join the debate. And I wouldn't presume to. These guys got brains that could melt mine. But what they say is the language thus far from Samuel and from God has not been the language of king. The language that God has been using is language around leader, ruler, prince. So what can I contribute to the discussion thus far? When the people say, long live the king, all I would say is it seems once again consistently Israel seems to be racing ahead of God's plan. God said, here's a ruler, here's a prince, there long live the king. These people with their issues of following God have once again raced ahead of God. Now let me show you I am human. Because at this point, I, like many before me, could go on a continued rant of beating up Saul. Saul has flagged his incompetence. Saul has flagged his sin. But surely there's a space for some sympathy for Saul. 
If you feel nothing for Saul, then may I gently suggest that perhaps you have never felt the weight of significant leadership. I was blessed this morning as I shared this message at 8 a.m. to look out and see a number of retired clergy. And I offered them the opportunity to tell me I was wrong afterwards. I haven't heard any from any of them, but I said, you know, if I was to invite my older brothers on the platform to testify about their years of ministry, they would tell you stories of people blowing their minds with their generosity. Christians just showing amazing sacrifice. People who just, you think, Lord, why are you asking me to lead when this person is so much more godly than I am? People who have just caused their hearts to sing. And if I pushed them further and said, tell the whole story, they'd also tell you about people who'd caused their hearts to break. They'd talk to you about unspeakable pains and disappointments and unfairness. They'd speak about the challenges of their own feelings of inadequacy and the times where they looked at God and said, why on earth have you picked me for this? Why would you put me in that space? Times where they said, I'm not doing it. You, can, you, you send a fish to swallow me if you want me to do that. I'm not doing it. I'm not the man for the job. They would tell you how hard in the context of even Christian leadership, leadership can be. And any of you who have felt the weight of leadership know There's a part of all of us called into that space where you think, the boot of my car seems like a really good option right now. I'm happy to be counted alone, but I would be counted honest to say to you, I understand Saul. When I read he was hiding amongst the baggage, as I said, this came out of my devotional time, I looked up at my wife and I said, that guy's smart. I'd be in the boot of my donkey too. Squeezed down in a saddlebag where no one could find me. I've read Judges. I know what it looks like to lead these people. I've seen Moses sit under a tree and go, I didn't give birth to all of these people. Saul makes sense. Saul makes sense. But it doesn't make him right. He makes sense, but he's signed his incompetence and he's demonstrated his sin. Let me tell you something about leadership that we can learn here. And that is that following breeds courage for leaders. If you are a leader and you feel that, I'd rather be in my boot moment, following breeds courage. Why? So often I look at Saul and I go, this guy doesn't realize that it's not up to him. If only he had realized he had a big God who he could follow, he'd be so much braver as a leader. I look myself in the mirror sometimes, I go, if only you would realize this is not shame contingent, but God contingent, you'd be a lot braver. You'd step in a lot harder. You'd be more careful. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel the weight of witness sometimes. Do you not? You need to be a disciple maker to lead the world in the ways of God's truth. I find the pressure of declaring some of God's truths to a world that think they're antiquated, perhaps bigoted, perhaps silly. I find it hard to have actions sometimes that also demonstrate the same grace, love and gentleness that would fit appropriately with that commendation of truth. And I want to back away from that leadership role. I don't know how you feel about that, but that, that, 
that, that concept of witness can be hard. Saul found it hard. And I suspect if, 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 I was to design, if I was to show you how he weighted his challenge, I'd say on the one side, Saul saw that job is big, dealing with Philistines, leading God's people. I've read Judges. That's ridiculous. So Saul's going, big job plus big expectation of people, but he forgot to look at the other side of the scale. The other side of the scale is big God who says, I'm leading this thing, led it since Egypt. Led it since before Egypt, will lead it into eternity. And Saul, as he measures his leadership scale, tips that way. The weight of the task and the expectations of the people for him weigh much heavier than the weight of his enormous God who will lead. It was never dependent upon Saul. And perhaps his courage failed as a leader because his capacity as a follower was already lacking. He did not observe his God. Being a follower will help you be courageous as a leader. So let's talk about courage in fellowship. We're moving on from verse 26 to the end of the passage. And this is the part that really moved my heart as I sat and read this some time ago. So Saul returned to Gebeah. He returned to Gebeah because that is where he lived and Samuel sent everybody home. So Saul goes back to Gebeah. It's a Philistine outpost, you might recall. And so as Saul returns to Gebeah, where the Philistine outpost is, what should he be doing? Well, like a guy who's been away for a long time, comes home, sees his lawn up to his knees, you've got to now mow the lawn. Come home and find a Philistine outpost, it's time to mow the lawn. There's no more backstage. You in the spotlight have been declared. You now have to find, you now have to do what your hand finds to do. You've got to deal with these guys. And now I'll introduce you to some of my heroes of the Bible. I don't know their names, but I know their character and I know their quality. Saul went to his home, I'm reading from verse 26. His home in Gebeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. These men are called valiant or brave because they see what we see. They see a leader tainted by sin. They see a leader whose incompetence is shown. They see a leader who will leave one day. He will die. And they see a leader walking into something that may cost them their lives, a war. And they go. They go. They go. They're valiant and they're brave because at great personal cost seeing the imperfections of their leader, they don't damn him. They use all of their capacity to strengthen him. They lead up. They press in. Even though they are eyes wide open to everything that is inadequate about him, they lead up. And that is why they're valiant. Verse 27 goes on with language that is challenging. Because it says, but some scoundrels or worthless men 
said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gift. But Saul kept silent. These men are not valiant. These men are not brave. The Bible declares them scoundrels. What do they do? They doubt? Well, surely that's understandable. This guy's shown his incompetence. He's hinted at his sin. Wouldn't you doubt? I would doubt. Brothers and sisters, this is where this series gets challenging. For the last few weeks, we've spoken about being called to follow. And we can all give mental assent, I'm sure, to the concept when someone says, and so we're going to follow God. Amen. I know we're Anglican, not that kind of church. I wish we were. We're going to follow God. So you got it in you. Help him, Jesus. We're going to follow God. Everyone gives mental assent to that. And sometimes we fall over in trying to actually act on it on Monday, but we give it our best shot. At this point, we start to get challenged on something a little harder, something culturally invasive, something me and you invasive. Called to follow God and those he appoints over you. The concept of firsts among equals. And this gets challenging, particularly if you're an Aussie in 2021. These guys doubt, and that's understandable. Following God makes sense. Sometimes following his leaders when you see their sin and their incompetence and knowing they're going to leave anyway can get tough. They despise him. Doubt is understandable. Despising is unacceptable. It's unacceptable that they would treat the one who has been anointed by God this way. It's unacceptable and it shouldn't be received. They dishonour him. This is unallowable. I'm not sure if you've heard the phrase, salute the uniform. This is a space where sometimes the guy in the uniform does not impress you and you see the sin, you see the incompetence, you have the disagreement, but you salute the uniform. You acknowledge that that is an office that existed beyond him. It exists while he's in it and it will exist after him. You salute the uniform. What they have done here is dishonoured that God had placed someone to lead. They can doubt. It's unacceptable that they would despise. They brought no gift. And it's unacceptable that they would dishonour. They brought no gift. It's unallowable. Salute the uniform. And so with time running away from us, let me give you a couple of things to ponder as we bring this into our context. Sometimes it can be difficult to follow our boss, our different leaders, pastor, our life group leader. So let me ask you to reflect upon some words that are almost anathema in our in our society today, and see how you feel about them. They might diagnose for you some things to take before the Lord. How do you feel about language like permission? I've worked with others who have said things like, it's always easier to ask for forgiveness than to seek permission. It's far less honourable. It's not valiant. I would say it's scoundrel-like behaviour. How do you feel about language like command? How do you feel about language like submission? How do you feel about language like honour? 
How do you feel about language like, more important to be in right relationship with my leader than to be right? You know, in a little while, I pray, an anointed and appointed king, not like the nations, but like the Anglicans, that's what rector means, little king. It's true, you can't make this stuff up. will be appointed to lead us as a church. How are we going to go with following? How are we going to do with that? And you say, yeah, we're going to be great. Let's start training. And I know we've been in training, but the small things will help us do well with this. Small things. Let me give you an example. I don't know who this person is or who these people are. If I did, I wouldn't share it. But I know in a church far, far away in the galaxy, blah, 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 blah. One time during a certain pandemic, a pandemic marshal approached a group of people gathered together in a less than specified distance. And the pandemic marshal said, excuse me, would you please disperse? And some members of that group looked at the pandemic marshal, hugged each other and smiled. This is not to shame those folks, wherever they may be. But this is to say, if we can't do the little things, if we can't be attentive to our fellowship with the small things, how can we be certain and how can we be encouraging that our bishop would appoint a leader to come and lead us with confidence that we are a people who will follow that we will be found a people of valiance and not saints who might act in a scoundrelous way. Now you might say that's an easy talk to share, Shane. It's not. It's really not an easy talk to share with you. You know why? You may or may not be aware. My position in this church is 2IC. But perhaps the best way for me to understand my 2IC role is... First in fellowship rather than second in charge. And I invite you to watch me practice while I preach, practice what I preach. It'll be my job to follow first. And I, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, come with, come with, support, lead up, be people of valiance. You know, if you're thinking this is all tough, don't worry. This book will continue and you will see a later king come who will show such a beautiful example of how to do this. You think, oh, Jesus. Yes, Jesus will do it. But just wait and be thrilled as you're initially more competent, less sinful, younger and further away from death. See how he responds to his leader, Saul, and be encouraged. God who leads gives us leaders And he has given us his spirit who has changed us and calls us to have the courage to lead where appointed and to follow where called. Let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious heavenly father, we do thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his love for us. We thank you for his amazing capacity to pray things like, not my will but yours, father. We thank you for the incredible courage that God man had as a leader, and that incredible courage that God-man had as a follower. 
Father, we pray for us, for ourselves, that your spirit who has touched us, who has changed us all into another person, if we know Jesus, that he would also make us attentive to the calling that you have put before us. Father, help us to be strong and courageous in leadership and help us to be strong and courageous and valiant in fellowship. Father, if I have spoken in error this morning, then I pray that the words I have uttered might be quickly forgotten by everybody and deleted from my brain. But Lord, if these things be true, then we ask under your Holy Spirit that they may now be written in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.